Just the people party. Live from the blue note. 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 Come on. One, two, three, and the place to be is the BKMC, the MCEO, Talib Kwali. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, but right now we are at the Napa Blue Note Jazz Festival. It's a beautiful, sunshiny day. Jazz is literally in the air. I couldn't ask for more perfect circumstances. We've had a great time so far watching all the performances, hanging out with all the people. It's like summer camp. It's like a family reunion. And I got my guy that I want to interview. I've been wanting to interview this guy for a long time. He is a newsmaker. He is a newscaster. You see him all over YouTube, all over cable. He's on MSNBC. He used to be all over CNN. And, and Adweek named his show, The Beat, the most watched cable news show right now. Um, he's been called a remarkably effective interviewer, an outstanding interviewer amongst the best on television. This man is so good at his job. He's the only person to make Lee Daniels cry besides Damon Dash. <laughs> <laughs> he's a true fan of hip-hop. Hip-hop is a fan of him. He's been name-checked. He does his own name-checking. John Oliver be trying to get at him because of all the name-checking he does. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a lot of questions for this guy. We are live at the Blue Note, so I'm not going to take too much time with the intro. I want you to show your love for the Beats' own Ari Melbourne in the house. Yo, thank you so much. That's a beautiful intro. Great to be here with, with all of your viewers, listeners, and everyone in person here at this festival. Ari, you're quite the MC. Respect. You know how to move a crowd. We're, and we're building the crowd. I see you know, people going to be watching this later, too, but... Everyone could come in. You could sit on the green. This is a real live podcast happening right now. That's right. That's right. Now, I see you backstage at all types of secret events, <laughs> underground events. Harry Belafonte once told me that he walks through the back rooms of history. And I've tried to live my life in that way. And when I walk through those back rooms of history, I see Ari Melbourne. Why is that? <laughs> Respect. Uh, I guess sometimes I get to go to things that I love that. As a journalist, you have extra access anyway, right? Because mm -hmm. you can almost always ask for the press pass. Mm -hmm. Even at the White House, right? Mm -hmm. You don't always get in, but there's a process for that. So I think I might have seen you at the White House, yeah. too. <laughs> so if you're a credentialed journalist, there's that. That's part of the job. Then there are those places where credential don't get you in, right? right relationships, right. trust, uh, building with people might get you in. And you know how it is. I wouldn't say I don't do it for the parties. I mean, that's not the core energy. Mm -hmm. But I love uh, to meet people. I love to be invited places. And we last night, real talk, I was with you and, and Dave and other people. Macy yep. just just taking it all in. So that's that's a great part of it. I heard you were at the Clive Davis party this year. Yes, first time ever okay. for me. Yeah. Did you have a good time? I had a great time. Clive holds this really illustrious Grammy event that, in some ways, at least for some artists, is bigger than being at the Grammys. It's certainly mm -hmm. smaller. Um, and he is such an industry titan. I love being there, yeah. Yes, indeed. And Lil Weezy played this year. Weezy right. and Lil Baby played. I heard. I had FOMO. Um, <laughs> now, your show is on the cable news. Yes. And, you know, it's been a long... Cable news has been, like, ubiquitous in our life for a long time. The the 24-hour news cycle is something that you're a part of. But unlike a lot of cable news shows, your show does well on YouTube. Yes. One billion streams on YouTube. Why do you think your show does so much better on YouTube than a lot of the cable news shows. Well, I appreciate you bringing that up because first of all, we, we talk so much about facts and how we get an information and what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the credentialed journalistic outlets are basically paywalled. Mm -hmm. um, cable news is generally paywalled, meaning you have to pay for a subscription if you want to get it on TV. Mm -hmm. uh, New York Times, you get a certain number of articles, then it's paywalled, right? Washington mm -hmm. Post. So we have had a lot of success and reach on YouTube, in America, and around the world, and it's free. 
Mm-hmm. So to me, as someone who got into this to tell stories, uh, to deal in facts, to look at big issues in civil rights, right? I don't want it all paywalled. So the fact that it has done well there is important. You asked why. I think that, A, if you're doing things that matter to people and that aren't just perishable in a day, it's just like music. Mm-hmm. Something might fit a moment, but mm-hmm. if you're doing things that run a little deeper, mm-hmm. um, people might want to watch them a week later, a month later, a year yeah. later. And we found that what they call long tail with YouTube viewers as well. Right. Now, what I appreciate about you being on YouTube is that my friend Autumn has a term she calls these people uh, the YouTubian nation. Okay. And it's a nation of people who are not interested in facts. They're just interested in what the algorithm sends them. They're interested in confirmation bias. There's a lot of false information on YouTube. Someone will say something to me like, well, you know, this is a fact. Just look it up, look it up on YouTube or Google it. And I'm like, well, I could look on YouTube and see that the earth is flat. Doesn't make it a fact. So the fact that you focus on evidence, um, you say that evidence is a lot better than drawing a conclusion. Yeah. You have like data and research and evidence. Um, do you feel like journalism suffers from meme culture and sort of the YouTube journalistic nature that people have these days? Yeah, I mean, that's a challenge with any era you're in. You want to meet the era. You can't just be sitting out on the phonograph or a silent movie mm-hmm. when the world's moving on. But you <laughs> right. also... But you also have to have values and standards. Mm -hmm. You're talking about algorithms and a world where people can pick out things and call them facts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone who's shouted you out, Hove, said, my new name is just the facts, while y'all just adjust the facts, (laughs) pick this and that out just to match. And that's a bar about confirmation bias. Because you can even find a factoid, we call it. Right. right? You cover a police brutality case and somebody picks a factoid. This guy got a, a suspension in middle school. What does that tell you? It, that might be a factoid, whether that is in the context of the actual facts of the case and whether mm-hmm. the government abused force against an innocent individual, right, mm-hmm. is a larger story. So I, I think that memes going viral, spreading information could be very positive. I could point you to examples in civil rights, in uh, surveillance of the police, Arab Spring, where these things empower people. And I can point you to a ton of examples where people just go, no, I have something online and it looks like it's from a media outlet and it's not. Or it looks like it's from yeah. encyclopedia and it's not. And they're trafficking in that. And, and that also can hurt people. Yeah, you can have your own opinion and not your own facts. Yeah. Um, what you were speaking to, people take facts and remove all context. And just because you're speaking a fact doesn't mean you're telling the truth. To the point of you bringing up the hip-hop lyrics, your brain is like an encyclopedia. You are like a walking rap genius. How you're able to not just access lyrics, but access lyrics and drop them in the context of what we're talking about is amazing. It's like the same skill that MCs use as freestyling, except you have this library of lyrics that you use to enhance your freestyle. I appreciate that. It's it's probably not as original or creative because when MCs are freestyling, right, we, we're, we're being led inside their mind as they're making it up, as they go. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing is, is really similar to what I do journalistically. I understand that if I do it with a lyric, it might pop more, people notice it more. Right. But I think good journalism draws on a lot, right. right? In my experience, people who are worth listening to have done a lot of listening. Mm. And so if we're doing our jobs well, as journalists, we've listened to a lot, we've sifted through a lot, and then we're trying to pull it in relevant. Mm-hmm. And if you just pull it in like, without relevance, as you said before. It might be true, but it might right. not go anywhere. So, yeah, when I think about lyrics and You culture, did do that once. Okay. There was one that you did that I <laughs> was like, it. okay, that one, I don't know if that one worked. <laughs> you said, started from the Biden, now we're here. <laughs> well, that was a pun. 
That was just a pun. But also, where did I say that it? That was a pun. Where did I say it, though? On someone's show. I don't remember where it I, was. No, it was, I said it <laughs> at the White House lawn. So it was a dad joke pun context, with a flex. Context, With okay. a flex. But yeah, okay. no, that didn't... I have a, So I, my friend Carlos... Called, you have a bunch of good ones. Thank you. My friend Carlos... Because I do it all... I've been doing this my whole life. Right. So my friend Carlos calls it a relevance check. Right. And he shortened it to rel check. Right. And so we could be at a restaurant or something, and they'll be like... Oh yeah, we have the, this wine list or whatever, and I'll be like, "Yeah, it's like it's like Rick Ross said, like, bro, yeah, rose, and my and Carlos will be like, rel check, rel check, and I'll be like, but he did say that, and he'll be like, yeah, but you didn't do anything with that, you just right. mentioned it, so yeah, but I've always been doing. You that. have good friends, <laughs> you have good friends. Uh, one of my favorite interviews I ever did was on your show. Oh, thank um, you. I forget the topic, but you brought me on with Chuck from All Hip Hop. Shout out to Chuck, that's a good guy, and um. Fat Joe, we were talking about Fat Joe, who's a guest on it your was, show. It office. was you, Chuck Creekmer, right. from allhiphop.com. Right. Fat Joe entered the chat, as right. did Bill Crystal. Bill Crystal. And you had a great line with him. We used that. This is like, we had Taliban. We've used that in, like, montages. Right. Because you said, shout out to Fat Joe. Right. And I always like to mess with people, keep it real on the show. But it's always funny. You said, shout out to Fat Joe, and great to see Chuck again. And it was just, like, silent. And Bill Crystal, who was, you know, he was game to be in the convo, but right. he worked for Bush and Quayle and, and White House. And I said, no shout out for Bill Crystal? <laughs> and Talib just goes, I don't know the man like that. <laughs> I don't. I don't know Bill Crystal like It is that. what it is. I just know he's a, a Republican. He works with George Bush. He might be a great guy. I wouldn't know. Um, but shout out to Bill Crystal. Years later, he gets his shout right, out. Right, years later. My brother, I was talking to you a little bit about my brother, Jamal Green. He is uh, one of the foremost constitutional lawyers in the country. He works at Columbia University. Um, he worked on the Obama campaign, similar to how you were working with Kerry. He then started focusing more on law. He wrote a book called When When Rights Went Wrong. What made you make the transition from politics to you actually started doing public defending, right? Yeah, I worked in the Manhattan Public Defenders. So that's for indigent uh, individuals who are arrested but don't have funds. Mm -hmm. uh, they can't afford a lawyer. And that's the group that goes in there. So I, I did that. I worked for Center Constitutional Rights. Um, as you mentioned, I also worked for two U.S. senators. Mm -hmm. um, so I was in it in that way. And then I felt ultimately, and I practiced law, but I felt that what I get to do now and in shifting into journalism was a way to draw on those skills, but still be in some ways more impactful. You could work a case in Talib, it could take three years. Mm -hmm. Right here, I'm, I'm on a daily basis covering things. And so it fit, I guess... There's more than one way to engage, but for me, it actually fit my vibe more. Right, right, right. Um, you got a law degree at Cornell, right? Yeah. Is uh, Andy Bernard on the office an accurate portrayal of a Cornell guy? So Andy is, of course, the very annoying, <laughs> smug, self-satisfied, and yet also insecure as so many Right, he wears a lot of are. pastels. Yeah, uh, very, very on point. Like, very sometimes you'd be like, oh, it's an exaggeration. <laughs> no, I mean, you know... The joke is that Cornell is like that, even though it's a very, it's considered a very good school. It's not in the top half of the Ivies. So to go to an Ivy League is great. I was fine with it. That's my vibe. But you got a lot of kids there who are like, well, you know, I was waitlisted at Princeton. And you're like, you still talking about this? Like, it's like when Drake says, imagine me talking about if I never made it. And it's like, you make it or you don't live your life. There's a lot of that at Cornell. And no disrespect. But there's a lot of that energy, which I didn't really vibe with. Right. Well, shout out to Ed Helms. And um, shout out to Dwayne Wade, because you mentioned vibe, and he is the curator of the vibe here at Blue Note. I don't know if I'm in the right vibe. I have to check with D. Wade. 
He is the curator. He got a great title. He did. I don't know how he got that job. I want to... When <laughs> Was there even auditions? Is it like a... Can I submit my resume for curator of the vibe? I would say you have a lot of credentials. <laughs> yeah, I do have credentials. Now, you also worked for a First Amendment lawyer, Floyd Abrams. Um, my, one of my favorite things to say in the world is freedom of speech does not come with freedom from consequences. In this era where you have a lot of people, particularly on the right wing, who I feel like weaponize freedom of speech to just feel like they can say whatever they want to say without pushback, which is my opinion, what do you think people get the most wrong about freedom of speech and how it uh, specifically relates to the First Amendment legally? Well, it's a great question. Uh, I think that we live in a very legal culture, like Tocqueville talked about that when he first visited America. And we, to this day, you have all of the ways that the courtroom is held up as a way that we understand things. So you can think about all the movies, courtroom dramas, celebrity trials. Mm -hmm. We're just a very legally suffused culture. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we take a legal concept and we want to over-apply it. So freedom of speech in the First Amendment is literally Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, religion, or protest, gathering, uh, and by Congress, we've taken that to mean government. So, if, if again, we're at a jazz festival. I'm not going to go too much law school on you, but... No, you could get wonky on Yeah, but basically Have that a is... a smart audience here. Respect. And <laughs> everywhere out there. That's about the Constitution setting a ceiling on the power of the government. So, properly understood, that's about the government's abuse of its powers, which we've seen, and any member of any community, marginalized community, knows what that looks like that you don't want the government through, say, the police arm, right, beating you up for talking, incarcerating you for talking, et cetera, doing that. And there's other versions of that. That's totally distinct from the consequences that come with someone says something, someone says something else in response. Mm -hmm. Someone advocates something, someone advocates consequence for that. And so I do think sometimes that piece of it can get lost. Mm -hmm. I will say second, and this is sometimes less popular these days, any freedom of speech properly understood, has to go beyond what you agree with. That's right. Right? The freedom to only hear what you like or be complimented, right, isn't a freedom at all. That's just promotion. That's right. just cool. So while there's the line about if somebody is, is doing things that are so heinous or hateful that we want to think about what do we say back to that and what are the public societal norms we want to draw, I think that's important. Mm -hmm. I don't think, though, that when that tool, right, like saying someone advocated something terrible or violence and how do we how do we balance that out or say well that if they do that i don't want a company that i'm affiliated with endorse with an endorsement right. deal with them like duh but that's again consequence is different from saying you don't want to hear any differing view right and i see those issues also sort of muddied up sometimes yeah that's essentially what my brother's book is about the idea that uh people want their rights more than they actually want actual freedoms now naming your show the beat that was a dog whistle to hip-hop fans. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. And my brother, Jonathan, who's here this weekend, um, came up with that actual name. And it was one of those things, it's hard to name a show. There have been a million shows. When you launch the show, it's like, you're not special. Like, it's li live cable news. There's 18 hours of programming, right? So it's like everything you ever heard has been tried. The record, full, you know, full disclosure, on the record, reliable right. source. Everything you even think of has been tried. Mm -hmm. And my brother, when he said the beat, it just hit like, Oh, of course, because there's the reporting beat. Mm -hmm. You know I like puns from started from the Biden. That's right. Reporting beat. They say like, oh, you're on the legal beat. You're on the music yeah. beat. And then the beat 
of right. the music that we, right. we're so indebted to on the show. Yeah. How did you start loving hip-hop so much to, this, to, to the point where you got to this point? So I went to, anyone here from Seattle? Since we're here, yeah. I went to Garfield High School in Seattle. That's Quincy Jones High School. It's Jimi Hendrix's high school. Freshman year, I mean, I'd been interested in music anyway. I was listening to a lot of reggae, Wailers, mm -hmm. uh, Desmond Decker, Mr. Yellow Man, all that stuff, like when I was like 12. Mm -hmm. And then freshman year was like the Fugees dropped and that mix, Lauren Wyclef, the Caribbean uh, sort of Rasta-infused Haitian sound with original hip-hop grabbed me, and then I never let go. I was super into rap from then on. You have uh, an affinity for Jay-Z, as we've seen. Um, I do. You did a whole special on God Did, which I want to get into. But um, what's up with John Oliver, bro? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I like John Oliver a lot. I do. I watch his show all the time. I'm, a, I'm like a student of John Stewart and that whole crew. Um, but he be going in on you. They've done it three times. You got to tell people, for those who don't know, like, they've done it three times. <laughs> Yeah, he goes in on you. Yeah, I love it. You got to go back. You got to go in on him. You got to do a segment of things that John Oliver does in pattern fashion. I'll tell you this. In all, in all reality, I know my lane. Mm -hmm. You can't pick a fight with a comedian that smart. Okay, okay, okay. I mean, that smart a comedian, mm -hmm. man, he'll just come back at you. I did mention, I mean, basically, I, I use lyrics on the show. And sometimes it's to make a point and sometimes it's funny. And they cut them all together in these clips uh -huh. that they, they, it's a series now. It's a series <laughs> lampooning me. And now. And this. now this. Right. And they call it, um, they called one Ari Melber, uh, Jay-Z quotes, mm -hmm. Ari Melber rap quotes. And then the third one they did, they called Ari Melber will just not fucking stop. Right. <laughs> and then they show the clip. So, right. I mean, I take it in good fun, but obviously I it's think. It's pretty funny. It's very funny. I think what Oliver is responding to is something we all deal with. And it's obviously much easier to, Dealing with profiling when you are in a society where you're already mainstreamed, you already have a leg up with a society saying, well, this is what a news anchor looks like. That kind of profiling is very light, so I'm yeah. not complaining about it. But it is interesting intellectually that the profiling is basically, how does this guy like hip-hop, right? Yeah, Which is well, no different or not as bad as, but in the profiling ballpark of being like, oh, young man, how, how, why would you want to be a doctor? And it's like, so what are we bringing to the right. table when you say medicine's not for you or hip-hop's not for you. And we know hip-hop, which represents all people, marginalized stories, also stories of success. Mm -hmm. uh, stories of seriousness. You're known for your consciousness. I was quoting Hove talking about you last night. Also stories of partying and joy and fun. This is people's party. Here we are. This yeah. is people's music. So for, for so, some people in the society, I'm not saying John Oliver's doing right. that, but I, the joke is almost like, who are you to fuck with this? And it's like, who are you to tell me what to fuck with? Which it makes it takes it even deeper, right? Because I'm a huge fan. Yeah, give give it up for that. What I, but I love John Oliver. He's very right. funny. And to take it even deeper, if you're a fan of John Oliver's comedy, you know his comedy is very self-aware, mm -hmm. self-deprecating. It's sort of the idea that I'm not cool enough for any of this stuff I'm talking about. Right. I'm not cool. I don't wear my hair cool. I don't look cool. I'm from. I'm a foreigner. So he is almost like it's almost a mirror of himself. Like, I can't get away. I can't ever do Jay-Z lyrics. So look at this fucking guy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now, what I love about what you did with the God did is that you didn't just fan out over Jay-Z. You also tackled the very racist war on drugs. And you called the war on drugs racist. Mm -hmm. Which, in my estimation, that kind of falls in the spectrum of activism journalism. 
I don't look at you as an activist journalist. No. I look at you as a more straight ahead, just the facts, evidence, data journalist. But that leaned into activist journalism. You do an interview with Steve Bannon, that's clearly not activist journalism. So my question to you is that, you know, you say you, you talk about the value in hearing a range of sides. And there needs to be, I think that there needs to be a space for that, right? But at what point, and your interview with Steve Bannon was very early in his political career, was before he said a lot of more heinous things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Steve Bannon, you know, I don't mince words here. I call Steve Bannon a Nazi. At best, he's a white supremacist. That's how I feel. He said we should embrace racism. He's a guy who runs Breitbart.com. Breitbart, to me, is just a straight-up Nazi website. You are somebody of Jewish origin, uh, but you're also a journalist. You sat down with Steve Bannon. He defended Roy Moore on your show. Um, At what point, or do you ever get to a point where you're saying, this guy is so heinous that even though there's a value in here another side, I got to draw the line at this guy? Yeah, it's a good question. So... You brought up Bannon, Hove did. I'll try to get to both. Right, right. That's, a, yeah, that's yeah. a remix, right? You don't expect the <laughs> Bannon feature on that college track. Um, we got any big Steve Bannon fans here at Jazz Fest? <laughs> I'm guessing not. Uh, you know, he was the campaign chief for Trump in 16. He's now been uh, once convicted, twice indicted. He's dealing with a lot of different stuff. Um, the way I look at it journalistically is, is there a purpose to holding someone accountable? And do they already have a type of reach where it's out there? And so this might be the hardest interview they're ever going to do, or I'm going to do it on my platform, which is different than doing it five times or taking someone who's so obscure that they're going to get more known off my national news show than they would otherwise be. So where great power comes great responsibility. Spider-Man shit, right? As Stormzy said, (laughs) shout out, shout out Tom, Spider-Man, that's my bro. Wait, you doing UK rappers too, guys? Just... <laughs> and I'm more into the Dark Knight universe, but you know. Okay. Um, so, so the short answer is, it's not a rule; it's case by case. But I do know that if you're at work and they do something unfair and tell you it's case by case, it always sounds like bullshit. Yeah. Like, oh, I get it. So there ain't a rule. So I get the skepticism of that. But we on my team in a collaborative process, think deeply about that. So we had Peter Navarro on, Mm -hmm. who also was a peddler of these lies, but was involved in Trump's attempted coup, was in the White House at the time. Mm -hmm. I I faced criticism for having him on the show on MSNBC. That interview was later cited by uh, the Congress in its decision to subpoena and then refer him for prosecution. So I got to say, I just want to give it up to you for that interview, because that interview is one of the best interviews I've ever seen. And, and you really nailed him down on that interview. And, it's, and again, to be very clear, not take any kind of extra credit, it's not our purpose every time to predict the future to be like, like, you know, nobody quotes Ye anymore for a lot mm-hmm. of reasons. But mm-hmm. if you know the famous Ye line, gotcha. <laughs> it's not like I'm doing it at the end of the interview. I want right. to be fair. And if Mr. Right. Navarro or Mr. Bannon says things that are in the ballpark of what we talked about earlier, their views, even if many people disagree with them, views, policy, arguments, they're going to get time. That's why I get the interview. I mean, if I just yelled at them, they wouldn't even show up. Mm -hmm. But when they say things that are untrue or they're openly advocating for illegal activity, I mean, that was the one of the moments, again, I wouldn't expect everyone here to have seen it all, but like... No, no, I got the quote. You said to Peter Navarro, you said, you are risking going to jail. You do realize these investigators can hear you when you talk on TV, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I almost lost it. (laughs) So we're having that back and forth. And so... That's that thing where I don't believe you have to choose between 
getting the interview and being tough and adversarial, nor do I think you have to choose between getting, being tough and giving someone time to explain themselves. And when I get criticized for that, that's fine. That's part of my job because people say what you referred to. I mean, you said it in a very sophisticated and open-minded way, but you refer to the idea of if someone can be credibly documented as a white supremacist, why are they getting time at all? Very fair question. And no, Bannon's not like a regular, and I'm also not having him on as an expert on civil rights policy. Right, right. But right. in the context of his right. power, those are those interviews. That's my answer to that. As for God did, you know, I think about it so many ways, but because journal, good journalism has to be empathetic. When I think about someone like Hove, right, whose work I study, we're not, I've met him, but we're not personal right. acquaintances or anything. But you think about Hove, and you think about coming out of Marcy Projects, and you think about being one of the greatest writers without a pen, a poet lyricist who documents everything, who breaks Elvis's record for the most number one albums of all time. That is a public affirmation of a diverse audience of the work. Then turns around and starts these companies, which are some of the most successful new companies in the spaces he's in, mm -hmm. and creates so much value and so much thought and so much wealth mm -hmm. in, a, in a country that has less than 15 less than 15 black billionaires, period, full stop, and still has to then explain himself to sort of Wall Street elite, white-dominated society who will patronize someone like that. And you see it with, with entrepreneur athletes. You see it, of course, with artists. It's, it's wild. And so what he was saying in the track and the reason why we went and made it a news segment was it was newsworthy. It's underappreciated. It's new. Mm -hmm. And we walked through how when he gets in and out of the prohibition laws to get success, mm -hmm. that's treated as forever in many white Americans' eyes. Oh, you used to be a drug dealer. Mm -hmm. When you got fentanyl and Oxycontin and Al Capone, mm -hmm. and as a lawyer, I feel, yes, and I don't consider it activist at all, but I feel an extra fluency with the details of what makes it felonious is what the legislators say, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Oh, the legislators don't look like you. Oh, they were elected in racist systems. Mm -hmm. Oh, then fentanyl's different. That's business, mm -hmm. right? Opioid addiction needs to be met with empathy when it's largely associated with, and again, these are complex issues, so yeah. I'm not trying to simplify, but it's associated with more of a white usage or the crack cocaine disparity or a million things I could get into. So to me, we did that breakdown as a newsworthy discussion of those facts. Yeah. And then, and this is the thing where I feel mixed feelings about it because I, I mean, Hove then released it he released the news segment as a track. Right. And I just died. <laughs> like, that was a, very meaningful to me. But I have two minds about it. Because on the one hand, good, it broke through. But on the other hand, if you're in a society where saying basic facts is seen as heroic, the society has a problem. Welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Give it up to Hove. Now, actually, I'm going to add one more for you. Show of hands, how many people know what Hope said about Talib? Show of oh, hands. Oh, you're going to make a black man blush. <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> he was talking about the commercial conflict in his early Def Jam years mm -hmm. of, on the one hand, he wants to tell the story of his community, but on the other hand, he's making money, and Hope's never been shy about building up money. That's one sure. of his skill sets. Mm -hmm. And he said, because of the money he was making, he had to step away from the truer conscious lyricism that he wanted and he said lyrically i'd probably be talib kwali um but i got money what do you say five mics I've, uh but i made five mil uh something five about mil. common 
something. Yeah, five common. mil. Uh, I ain't been rhyming like, like common, common sense. sense, which is a flip on Common's name. Yeah. Who used to go by Common Sense? And so, again, I love, I love an enduring compliment. That's Hove saying, if he were going just to his true side, if he wasn't about making money, and the man's allowed to make money in America, he would have stayed more true to your lyricism. So give that up. And I gotta say, yeah, give it up for Hove. Um, I always used to say when when Jay Z was putting out, he used to put out records every fourth quarter. <laughs> to sort of raise the, the value of Rockefeller at the end of the year. And he put out these hits. Yeah, he knew and, what he was and, doing. In the fourth quarter, he's a businessman. He's a businessman. Man. See, I'm, I remember now. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I used to say, man, Hove is so talented and he's so insightful. What would Hove rap about? What would he sound like if he didn't have to like put out hits to keep the money rolling in? And it turns out he would sound just like Talib Kweli. Hey. Because if you listen to the 444 album, he's rhyming over Nina Simone samples. And he's rhyming about being, you know, rhyming about 5% influence stuff. And he's rhyming about black consciousness. He's rhyming about the story of OJ. And he grew dreadlocks. The dreadlocks that Jay-Z has, those same dreadlocks I had in high school. I had the Basquiat dreadlocks in high school. Hey. I was like, yo, he looks just like me in high school. So shout out to Hove. Every rapper, every gangster rapper who, who makes it to 40 turns conscious. Hey. That's how it goes. I love, that's a yeah. bar. I love yeah. that. I mean, just to add on to that, like, I've always felt that, so I think because we study his work, that wasn't surprised us, mm -hmm. uh, even though there's other stuff flipped in, and that's what art does. It reminds you of people's depth and complexity. Yeah. We don't, anyone you know well isn't just their job or just their outer layer, and on What's Free, which is the Meek Mill track, right, which is, he's, he's been doing it more through features lately. That's where the track opens, and he says, um, uh, three-fifths of a man, I believe the phrase, in the land of the free were the blacks enslaved. And then he goes through this history lesson. Mm -hmm. he, could, he could do that 10 years ago, but yeah, he wanted to do he hits. He did, he did. He said uh, the solo Mumia in these modern day times hey. on, on volume two, or volume three, he said that. But it's like he, he, he puts it in there. It's like he puts the medicine in the, in the candy and it's candy coated buffering. That's what it is. Yeah, and, he, and he's doing that in a way. And this is why we love the art. Like, and I know we got music lovers here. He's doing that over the years for people who want to put in the time. And if you don't, that's fine. Because mm -hmm. he has, on the early track, uh, I arrived on the day Fred Hampton died. Yeah. And then on Black Messiah, which is just new, like, that was on the that uh, album soundtrack right. with the late verse from Nipsey Hussle, Rest in Peace. And he says, I arrive on the day Fred Hampton, well, got murdered. Right. Not and died, right? Yeah, that's a, it's a callback, it's growth, it's everything. So you'd have to know both yeah. songs to understand why there's a pause. You're like, wait, did he stutter? But again, like jazz, right? You, could, you can enjoy it at one level. It's nothing wrong with that. You're not going to be an expert on everything. And then sometimes you're like, oh, I hear that note is yeah. a call out to what someone else did. And in jazz, there are no wrong notes. Mm. Yeah. Now, I feel like there's always been... I don't... I don't have a Jewish experience. I have a black experience. Not to say that there's no black Jews. I don't want to erase them. But um, anti-Semitism has always been something that's been in my life, just as a guy from New York. Right. Um, I feel like ever since social media, um, whether it's because of the misinformation or it's because of the cowardice, you could hide your identity, we're seeing an uptick in anti-Semitism and it becoming more normalized. The Steve Bannons of the world, you know, have to get interviewed now on MSNBC. So... George Soros is a key figure in all of this. And George Sor Soros is online, this, this boogeyman, not just on the right wing, but in my experience, a lot of black communities, 
even even people who are online, black folks and progressive folks, have demonized this billionaire, right? There's a certain amount of demonization all billionaires are going to get just for the nature of being a billionaire. But George Soros is someone who's, he's a Jewish Holocaust survivor. He's used his money to support what people would consider progressive causes. He's like a left-wing version of the Koch brothers. You know, right? <laughs> okay. But I thought, me as a black anti-racist person, I always get accused of working for George Soros. Like all the time. I'll well, let's settle it right now. What? Do you work for George Soros? I don't, I don't know where my check is going. <laughs> it might be going to my old address. I don't know. But I've never got a Soros check in the news, in the mail. But um, he's, he's considered, people say that he's a, so he's, he runs Black Lives Matter. He has nothing to do with Black Lives Matter. And you are someone who has grandparents who were actual Holocaust survivors, correct? Yeah, who fled, who fled Nazi Germany. Right. And so, others who were murdered. Right. So can you... What's your take on, like, the demonization of someone like a George Soros in this era? Well, I appreciate you using your platform to raise it, right? There's more than one set of issues. It's also funny, I have to say this, even though it's like, sounds funny, but it's like, I really take seriously at work trying to be a journalist, which means to do that right means not being just a male perspective or just a Jewish perspective or just a white perspective, right? So on the one hand, I just have to say that, like, we don't set the story rundown and be like, well, I'm Jewish, so this hits harder, so we're adding those stories, nor right. do we avoid them. So I just say that because I know people be like, well, wait a minute. Is that even possible? And the answer is you have a team effort and you try to do that. We have standards and practices, all that. So I say that at the work side. On the personal side, yes, I'm a human being. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's something I grew up with in my family and it's something that I'm very aware of my whole life. If anything, I think two points to answer your question. Number one, I think if you have proper historical knowledge and empathy the things that your own life, your own family went through can help inform how you look at other situations, right? So I do think, I hope it's enriched, even though there's a tragic history there, I hope that it's enriched the way I try to do my work. Mm -hmm. Then two, to the core of your question, look, there's many different hatreds around the world. We all live with that. We're all in America. And I, I, I you know, I talked about profiling earlier. People who are here in this festival, people I've spoken with already over these first two days seem pretty aware. So I'm sure y'all are aware of what we're in, right? Mm -hmm. There you go. Uh, but but anti-Semitism is a real old one, right? This is like an oldie, real oldie. Mm -hmm. um, so it comes back in certain ways. It can be beat back. You can document that post-World War II, after all of those horrors, right, in Europe, Western Europe, where they went through it, um, and in other places, um, you could see it being more patrolled after this horrific Holocaust. I do think what you say is accurate and the data on this is accurate. There's been a rise in hate crimes since 2016 in America. Many of them target black and brown people. They also target Jewish people in synagogues. There's been a rise of what is called the replacement theory. Have people heard of the replacement theory? Yep. Now, this is a, a one-two punch. The conspiracy theory, so anyone listening, anyone hearing that, I'm describing something false that's used right. for hatred, but it is basically a, a conspiracy theory that black and brown people are going to overrun predominantly white countries. We could get into the social construction of those terms, but that's the theory. And that an elite group of Jews are trying to help them, right? Mm -hmm. So we're having a conversation about all these issues we care about. But someone from that filter, and Tucker Carlson and other people were pushing that, they would filter this, take the image, take the clip, and be like, oh, here's this alliance. Mm -hmm. Here's this Jew. Here's the, you know, that's how they would see it, even though there's no truth to that, right? So there's all these ways that I think it is getting worse and coming back. And 
the, we know the tools. The tools to combat this are truth, strength, not, a, not echoing uh, the tactics of your opponent or your enemy. Don't become like them. Um, and coalitions. And I say that as an observation. I'm a journalist, right? But coalitions that actually say, oh, you're stronger together than apart can be used against uh, those hate mongers wherever they pop up. Absolutely. I agree. Um, now, for a little lighter fare. Let's get light. I mean, you did, you're doing the serious. For a little lighter fare. But we fare. all got the people in the sunlight right. here. This is light and serious at the same time. Yeah, a little light work. So because of you, 50 Cent went from beefing with rappers to beefing with state officials, former state officials. I love this one. <laughs> I, by the way, I love how, I mean, you're, I, know, I know you're informed, Tyler, but right. I love how you're just on it. Oh, yeah, I'm on but it. But this was great. So 50 Cent, you interviewed a former Kremlin official, uh, Andre Koz... How you say his last name? Kozarev. Kozarev. This is a guy who's been critical of Putin, critical of the Ukrainian war. Um, yeah, he was top proper... Kremlin, mm -hmm. and then he left when Putin took over. So right. he's seen the inside, probably been around bad things. Right. Because it's the Kremlin's rough. Right. You know? Right. Um, but now he's a... Yes, you say, he's a defector, and we interviewed him. Right. And now you interviewed 50 Cent. This was the most second... Highest watch interview you ever did, except for this Andre fellow. Yeah. And 50 Cent was very upset about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, you talk about YouTube, like, the, we do things now that go viral. And when we interviewed Kozarov, one of the things I asked him was, and this was over a year ago, I said, if the battlefield failures continue in Ukraine, at some point, do the general say to him, this is a war of choice. We need to stop. Mm -hmm. Which, to me, is a reasonable question. But sometimes a reasonable question is just wrong, and that's mm -hmm. why you go to the source. And he said, Ari, that's not how it works. Right. I said, how does it work? He said, they would sooner take him to an early grave than give him bad news mm -hmm. because you get killed over bad news in the Kremlin. Here we are, this time later, we've seen the, the threats to Putin have only increased exactly how he documented That interview went super viral. Mm -hmm. Like I said, lighter fare. <laughs> <laughs> then we had 50 on, and 50 loves numbers. I mean, I've noticed right. competitive people love to measure even way past the point when it would matter to them. Right. And I knew this about him, so I showed him a chart, and I said, you, of all the senators, Kamala Harris, you mentioned Bannon, of all these people, I said, you are the second most watched interview. Uh -huh. He was right ahead of Robert De Niro and right behind Kozarev. Right. And then he just went after Kozarev, like, beefing with him. He did. He started trolling him on And he on started Twitter. trolling him online, posting he more said, than once. He said, he said, you got it. He said Putin, Putin didn't like that shit you said. Be careful now. That's a hell of a troll. That's not no. And then he said, and then he said, and then when 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 the Kremlin official uh, tweeted back at him. So he, I'll tell you this. Yeah, so yeah. then Kozarev, and this is like the world we live in, right? We talk about the internet. It's like Kozarev is, he's a real dude, but he also has a sense of communication, right? You didn't get that high in the Kremlin. And he went, uh, he went Chris Brown on Robert Glasper, for those who get the reference, <laughs> and said, That's who, what he wrote. That's exactly he said, what he wrote. who is 50 Cent? Right. And then they started going at it, and then it got written up in articles, and people were like, what is happening no, but on your TV said, show? 50 said, oh, I'm happy you're still alive. <laughs> <laughs> and they sort of patched it up online, because then Kozarev later said, oh, my son likes your music, this and that. But that's, that's where the internet's wild. And what right. other platform would that have happened? Right. Now, I want to revisit, just because of the Putin thing, we were talking about anti-Semitism earlier. And like I said, I feel like it's more prevalent than anything. While we were being, while I was doing this interview just now, and I was going to ignore it, but I don't want to ignore it. Somebody shouted some things out just then. Somebody walked by and shouted out, uh, black people are the real Hebrews, right? Now, sure, okay. 
Yeah. I don't think anybody's debating this. But I think the idea that someone is going to walk by this interview and just see a white presenting Jewish person and not have any context of what we're talking about on the stage and feel like they have the right or the whatever to feel and to shout that out, that comes from some place of deep indoctrination. The fact that he felt like he could do that. And I'm bringing this up because uh, a lot of times when I talk about Donald Trump online or I talk about how I dislike Putin, people will say, well, he's fighting Nazis in the Ukraine, right? Now, the Putin propaganda machine has been very effective. (laughs) I get this every day online. Every day somebody tells me that the Ukraine is overrun by Nazis. They'll point to me a story from the New York Times from 2014 talking about this Nazi... uh, this Nazi faction that was in one of the, you know, the uh, the armies. There was like a bunch of Nazis who gained power in the Ukrainian army back in 2014. As if the United States army is not lousy with Nazis. As if the Russian army is not lousy with Nazis. The army is just where Nazis like to go. You know what I'm saying? They like to fight. So is there any, you know, the, the, the president of the Ukraine is Jewish. How do you feel about this idea that Putin and his Russian propaganda machine have been so effective? at convincing people that they're in Ukraine because they're fighting Nazis. Well, you put your finger on it. Propaganda is a core tool of oppressive regimes. Mm -hmm. Even very oppressive regimes, which have the monopoly of force Mm -hmm. in state power and have armies and Russia has nukes. You look at world history, you cannot physically control a large population with violence alone. Mm -hmm. The propaganda is what provides the wider support because you are brainwashing people and you are dividing people against each other or you're making them think that however bad this is, something else would be worse. So propaganda is central to that. And it's a, by the way, shout out to not only how you approach your show, but all of the people at the festival who are sitting in the sunlight listening to us talk about Nazis. And serious stuff, which matters. As you, I hope everyone has an extra drink after this. You right. deserve it. Drinks um, on Ari Melber. Yeah, I get. Is that right? <laughs> That's how propaganda starts. Rumors. Propaganda. Yeah, propaganda. <laughs> um, but but we need both, right? We need light and love. But we also need to be informed. Mm-hmm. So propaganda is a key tool of that you labeled it exactly and. There are different levels of this, right? If you're talking to someone that's actually in your life and you think they're going down this rabbit hole, meeting them with empathy and having a larger conversation might work rather than meeting them with like, you're wrong, that makes them defensive, that makes them feel stupid, right? How does a con work, right? A con works by the first time you're in it. Once you're in it, you're stuck in it. And it's hard to get people out of a con or out of a cult because you have to convince them that they're wrong Mm -hmm. and get out from under it. And it's usually, I mean, a lot of psychology is it's easier to believe something else. Yeah. The other macro point, which is true in other countries as well as our own, is that there are systems that are designed to try to divide people, right? So when we get into, sometimes you hear people doing like a grievance Olympics. Mm. And it's like, what was worth, this was worse than that. And it's like, by what measurement? And why is that the question? And yes, you can debate it out if you want to. And historians talk about levels of oppression. But um, I think it's also worthwhile to take a step back and say, who benefits from this propaganda, who benefits from pitting people against each other. This isn't a bar, but it's something Jay-Z said once that I thought about is he said, uh, they talk about how, oh, crabs act in a barrel. Yeah. Crabs ain't supposed to be in a barrel. Yeah. And you kind of go, oh, right, it's a very simple truth. And it's sort of like, who benefits from pitting all this 
against each other, right? That's and right. I think th those are those are not things that you finish. You know, when people say, "Oh, it's exhausting." Yeah, no, you got to replenish. You don't have to watch all the news all the time. I've been off for a week. I'm doing this with you because doesn't feel like work. It's fun, but right. I've been off work all week. So you have to take a break, but then you have to come back to it and understand it's a process. Democracy is a process. That's it's right. not like, oh, vote five times and then we're good. Right. No doubt. Um, did you see this movie, Active Measures, this documentary? No. It's a documentary that traces Trump's uh, history with Ukrainian uh, people uh, staying at the Trump Tower. And it's a documentary that dives into Cambridge Analytical. Uh-huh. Um, I was just wondering if you've seen it. It, it. it talks about some of that stuff. I love that you got... a. First of all, I love your Mavericks series. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. We're shooting a Mavericks interview today with Chance later today. Yeah, shout out to Chance the Rapper. Make sure you go see him on stage. Um, I love that you got a definition of the word woke from Erica Badu. Yeah, that was Because she would know. And I love that you allowed her to reclaim that word. Um, when does... And you have Ron DeSantis out here pushing this anti-woke campaign... They're trying to ban black books, ban books that uh, deal with LGBTQ communities, trans communities. Um, when does anti-woke become code for let's, let's just be racist? Well, it's, you're referencing how I asked Erica about it because she had kind of resuscitated and popularized the term, which has, of course, deeper roots in, in mm -hmm. American soul uh, with the song Stay Woke. And I asked her about how it's playing today. And that's something interesting that I love that I get to do, that you get to do, is like, we put together this montage. Um, my, my teammate, Miriam, who's here somewhere, but maybe... What's yeah, up, Miriam? Right there. Miriam in the orange, okay? She's actually getting all the drinks, so <laughs> make sure you go up to drinks her. Drinks on Miriam. Um, Miriam <laughs> and I and some of our other teammates, we're all on our, we're looking at these different quotes. And... I wanted to present them to her, which is different than just me doing what I've been doing today, which is a lot of talking. So I wasn't just going to characterize it. We pulled DeSantis, Trump, and some other kind of references in the culture of how woke is being now discussed. And she just said, I said, what's your response to that? And she said, well, quote, I think they mean black. Mm -hmm. And I think this has become, she said, a new word that can associate all these things while, while having this deniability. Right. Yeah. And it's a, by the way, it's a, it, there is progress in America, even in our dark moments. The fact that people don't want to admit they're racist is progress. Mm -hmm. It ain't much, but it's a thing. And right. so they could be super right wing. And then they still, it's like the, those podcasts. If you ever see a clip, because I don't listen to them, but I'll see like a clip on TikTok, be like three white guys usually. And they'll be like, I'm not racist, but <laughs> right. and you're just like, okay. But even, even in that content, space, they feel the need to do that. Even DeSantis feels the need to do that. So she's sp speaking about a term you used earlier, a dog whistle, a code word, and that's happening. Um, I also think that this is why we need artists and music because the system, DeSantis or whoever you pick, they're afraid of the reach of culture. They're afraid of this power. They're afraid of Erica Badu uh, or Lil Baby being a hero, not just out to somebody, but to their kids. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, we, we, talk, we touched on this earlier. We talked a little bit about racism. We talk about blackness, which is a difficult and complex concept. But one of the ways that black culture works in America is it has remained influential, exciting, innovative, and again, to use a word that we could debate, quote, cool. It was cool in the 60s. 
even amidst all of the pressure of Jim Crow, it's clearly very cool now. Hip-hop, something you led and created, something I study and love. Hip-hop is a global force. So it's beyond just American blackness because it means something to people in communities that mm -hmm. may have less experience with this. Yeah. So to your question about woke, all this stuff scares them because culture is a much stronger delivery mechanism than others. Certainly than news. I happen to work in news. I believe in it. But if the song, if you have the revolution will not be televised, if you have people singing Gil Scott Heron and learning, that scares them. And so there's a silver lining to it, too. Yeah. And to your point, that's a great point. And to that point, you know, Black Star, I've worked with Gil Scott Heron, had a relationship with him. One of the books on DeSantis' um, book ban list is Toni Morrison, The Bluest Eye. The oh, wow. last paragraph for Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye is actually the hook for Black Star Steve's in the Night. Not strong, only aggressive, not free, we only license, not compassionate, only polite. Uh, that's, all, that's all for Toni Morrison. So if I didn't get a chance to read that book, I wouldn't have written that song. So it all connects. I love um, that. And I love that. And it's like when we had in the news coverage of the no-knock warrant used in the Gil police killing of Breonna Taylor, some people say, yeah, they're familiar with this because this is their lived experience. Mm -hmm. Some people know about it because they become experts in that field or they're very informed. That's great. Then a lot of people don't know about it, but might be against it, especially when you have the tragedy of uh, the obvious state murder in that case, right? Well, Gil Scott Heron wrote No Knock. That's right. The song 51 years that's ago. That's right. So the culture can bring things to people that they might not otherwise know. And that's the beauty of it. We talked about division today, but the other beauty is that someone who's a Gil fan says, oh, I, I've never seen a No Knock raid in their neighborhood. Okay. Maybe they're lucky to be in that neighborhood. The point is, how do we get a, a society that's fair enough so nobody has to live in that neighborhood? Yes. And if they're learning about that from Gil, like I said, and their parents are Florida Republicans, that scares them. Right. But that's progress. And that's progress. And progress is not, it's usually not overnight. It's most always incremental. Yeah. And that's a hard pill for people to swallow. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. I got one more question. Okay. Um, you were born in Seattle, but you live in Brooklyn. You live in a neighborhood very close to the neighborhood I grew up in. So how do you like living in Brooklyn? I love living in Brooklyn. I grew up in Seattle. I always feel like just the way Seattle was when I was coming of age, which was the 90s, is really that thing that you see in places like Portland and Brooklyn and parts of San Francisco or old San Francisco. Like, So that was all very natural to me, the culture, the diversity, and then all the like, I'm not super healthy, but like all the health shit was like, they were on that in Seattle early. So now in Brooklyn, when you see like, they got vegan everything. Yeah. Everyone's doing yoga. Like you Cypher Sound says when you come across <laughs> the bridge, they give you a gluten-free unicycle. Yeah. <laughs> and all of it is can be a bit much, and all of it can be quite commodified and commercialized, a gentrification, all the issues that we deal with. But but it all felt in that way like a homecoming. Mm -hmm. um, and then the craziest thing is, like, when I first moved to Brooklyn, like, there are parts of life, right? Like, your life, my life, like, the work we do. There are pros and cons to all of it, for real. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the pros is, like, and I don't say it as a flex, but I say it with love. Like, there's a lot of streets in Brooklyn I go down and people are just like, what's up? Right. And that'd be different. Like, I could easily have this job, like, in a very red district in Florida, right? You end up living where you live. There's no, like, MSNBC guideline. Like, you got to pull up in Bed-Stuy. But, um, but it is a cool thing sometimes because it's just, like, that feeling, you right. know? And it's a very, very embraced, embracing, knowledgeable, and dope community. No doubt. Now, um... I want to thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Um, our timing is immaculate because we're hip-hop guys, and Rakim just started. So I'm about to go over to see Rakim. I know where you'll be. Yes. <laughs> Shout out to Ari Melber. 
We finished right on time to see Thank you, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>